0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners, to your continuation of the Futoshi Matsunaga case and the finale. Before we begin, I want to respectfully place those that Futoshi took from this world at the forefront to be forever remembered. Kumio Toraya, Takashige Ogata, Shizumi Ogata, Reiko Ogata, Kazuya Ogata, Yuki Ogata, and Aya Ogata, lastly Junko Ogata, manipulated and brainwashed into committing the awful crimes that took the lives of those she loved and that Futoshi knew only malice for. Listeners, today I wanted to touch on a couple of key areas of this case as a finale for the Vitoshi Matsunaga episodes. Today I'll discuss how Vatoshi was ultimately caught, when, by whom and how, the idea of evidence for this case, why is it a problem, the ultimate verdict, and the unravelling of his crimes, electrocution as torture and pliability of the mind, particularly referencing the Milgram experiment the Japanese justice system relevant to death penalties, and where they are now. Let's begin with the capture. March 2002, KD, the daughter of Kumio Toraya, and the school acquaintance that provided Futoshi access to multiple homes and houses to hide out in, was the person that led to Futoshi and Junko's capture. Just as a reminder, Kumio was the one Futoshi brutally murdered, and then melted down into oil and fats, then poured him into the ocean and out of mind. KD is his daughter. Now, KD was not going to give up from getting away at this point. She saw an opportunity in her escape. You see, after running away, being caught, signing a blood oath for Futoshi, and tearing out her own toenail, KD used her reserve strength to escape yet again. And without Futoshi's direct influence now. KD gave examples of Futoshi's insanity, his abuse, his torture, and cruelty to the Ogata family, the deplorable acts of violence, and the real threat that Futoshi was to those around him, sharing this with her grandparents and then taking it to the police. At first they had no idea how to identify KD, despite her grandparents' support. As you can imagine, they were unsure as to whether her story even made sense. Remember, all personal effects. Anything they held as their own would have been destroyed or detained at the house, and acting as a slave to Futoshi would mean absolutely no personal identification on them at all, to eliminate the thought that KD or anyone else should ever escape. After some time, KD was able to convince the police who she was and who she had been held captive by, explaining her background and evidence provided by her grandparents as to who she was to support her story. She then mentions the name, Futoshi Matsunaga, and the police who were already on alert to find him, acted on this information quickly, taking Futoshi and Junko into custody that same day. Once they had them in custody, they attempted to identify them. This was the break that the police had been waiting for since 1997, and it finally arrived. However, identifying them wasn't easy. Well, finding their ID or papers, well, was non-existent, they had none. Unsure as to where to start, the police scrambled for information, landing on their school yearbooks to locate who they were, their age, and confirm their identity, which as a result corroborated part of Katie's testimony. And just like that, they had finally captured Futoshi and his accomplice, Junko. That same day, Katie informed the police of the two Matsunaka children living in the house, plus the additional two that were being used as leverage from another family to extort money from. Yes, Another family, another extortion, and another set of tragedies to come if KD hadn't escaped and her grandparent had not listened to her. The cycle would repeat, and would have led to another series of murders, with KD included. And KD was immensely fortunate that her grandparents who initially sent her back to Fatoshi began to slowly believe the stories that Fatoshi told them were complete lies. That she wasn't an addict or a drug dealer, which Fitoshi previously made her out to be. And the return to their arms with missing toenails and physical trauma solidified those thoughts. The first action taken by the Japanese police when both Fitoshi and Junko were taken into custody was to separate them. Having heard the kind of control Fitoshi had on the Ogata family, they began to slowly understand the need to have Fitoshi away from Junko Ogata. Now I'm not certain they did this actively because of this, knowing what they knew from Katie's explanation of the events that took place over the past five years, but it also could have been just common practice to keep convicted parties separate to each other, and to question them independently. Also outside of the murders, Fidoshi had also been hunted for extensive fraud involving extortion, which made him especially interesting to the police on offences other than murder. As soon as the police had separated Futoshi from Junko, though, that mental grip that Futoshi had over Junko cracked. She completely confessed. Junko began working with the police hand in hand as to who committed the murders. Futoshi's instructions, methods of murder, the name of those murdered, and their methods of cleaning up the crime scene all divulged straight to the police, working with KD as well. All information as confessions, To put away Junko and Futoshi for years to come. But the conviction of Futoshi and Junko, well, it could have held on a knife's edge. And the quality of evidence is what matters here. It's all about physical evidence, information about the crime, how it was conducted, and how the murders took place. It's exactly what the police needed to put him away. But was it enough? Junko's testimony was critical. So was KD's. Initially, the police and the media only thought that Fatoshi and Junko held their targets captive, using them only for money, then freeing them to leave the city or country. But as Junko explained and worked ever closer with the police, they fully understood the gravity of this case. Corroborating missing people, transferring of funds, equipment such as stun guns and stun batons, and the work done on the houses after each murder which in itself has some kind of physical evidence, all of which was corroborated independently by KD. But the smoking gun here is that there were physical evidence of the murders, right? That there were bones, bodies, blood? Mates, there was no physical evidence found. And this leads me to ask the question, how do you convict a criminal or criminals of murder without any hard evidence to do so? Because, listeners, this Is what had my brain working in overdrive about, and particularly the verdict handed down to Fatoshi and Junko regarding the sentencing for their crimes, in that the lack of evidence for this case and what took place behind those stone walls would, to me, seem inadequate for a death penalty. One of the key reports state, the Japanese police never recovered any human remains and found no physical evidence, So they primarily relied upon Kumio's daughter's testimony and Junko's testimony during the police investigation. Now I admit, I withheld this information from you to understand what the jury would have experienced firsthand a trial by media as it was, information directly from the confessing parties that told their stories. Some have asked the question, what would be the reason for Junko to confess so much? She could have lied, joined Futoshi in denial, but she didn't. And that alone was enough to convince the Judge and Jury with the Prosecutor's help to put Futoshi behind bars as well. So I play devil's advocate here, unfairly perhaps with what you know now. But I must ask, let's say we are the Judge, Jury and Executioner. How can we convict Futoshi based on no physical evidence at all? And no less than sentence him to death? A sentiment that you'll see vaguely echoed within the Japanese justice system later in this episode. But I want you to think about this just for now. The real link here is Junko herself confessing and Katie corroborating. The motivation behind Junko's confession and why she didn't just all out deny any wrongdoing. I mean, had she not, how could you convict someone of the crimes committed? How could this be not simply a story that's concocted by mental illness or just general fabrication? which actually was Futoshi's offence, in that Junko and KD had made it all up. For me, mate, this was such a tough one, because most cases about serial killers, or killers include trophies, videotapes, letters, weapons, some kind of evidence that links the killer back to the murder. But here we have a man convicted of crimes that, well, he may or may not have done. You see, if Junko had not confessed, how could they convict her either? Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying he's innocent, and there are two points of information regarding the fact that he is in some way connected. But knowing what we know, how it's been collected, researched, and presented to us via journals and the media, which explains conflicting information, we need to be careful when it comes to the law, about how this person is sentenced. All the evidence regarding the murders were destroyed through boiling and melting of skin, fat and body parts, that was put forward by Junko and KD. The houses were constantly renovated and altered to cover evidence, and the period of these murders was over years of people dying in a heavily controlled environment. That meant Futoshi had the time to renovate, which he was purported to have done, and keep all criminal evidence from being tracked. Futoshi himself though would later establish his defense with a comment made to the police when interrogated about the Ogata deaths, for which he said, Apparently the Ogatas hate each other. So they can kill each other so easily and have nothing to do with me. I did not give orders to kill anyone. A valid defense if the only evidence there is two confessions. The strength of those two confessions, though, relate to the relationship Junko and Katie shared with Futoshi and the traceability of actions associated with the murders. The prosecutors would rely on the fact that Futoshi's contact with Kumio, the man dying at his hand, which he claimed wasn't intentional and the immediate absence of the Agata family is factors in further pinning the crime on Fatoshi. Again, though, no physical evidence. So I struggled to validate in my own mind. How could I convict a man to death based on such accusations? If I'm going to sentence someone to death, there needs to be evidence to make that kind of decision. Shared corroboration is a good door opener, but evidence is a door closer to a case that has the gravity of a death penalty. To me, knowing what I know and researching this case thoroughly, the evidence itself is fuzzy with testimonies providing 80% of the information, and sometimes with conflicting data. Not to say that what happened didn't happen, on the contrary, but to put someone to death over dual testimony is a bit of a leap for me. Perhaps not for some of you listeners out there, it might be easy to do so. But I need serious evidence to convince me that it was him that did it, or directly involved with the killings to issue that death penalty. So to be ever more concise in my approach, I kept digging for more information in this space, eager to grapple with the content myself, and the decision handed down to Fatoshi. I decided to break down what I do know regarding evidence, and maybe it'll help you listening out there to come to some conclusion on life in prison opposed to death. The core evidence provided is supplied by KD, a captive, and Junko, the accomplice. Each of their stories are corroborated based on very different perspectives, but timings, means of murder, Futoshi's whereabouts, the location of the murders, and method of murder are all corroborated against. Number 2, there's no physical evidence. Number 3, Futoshi was already on the Japanese most wanted list for fraud. Number 4, Futoshi denied he was a murderer, and that he's only used his targets as money trees so people he can extort continuously for an income but did not intend to kill them, despite having killed Kumio. And the evidence drops sharply there. I'm serious. It just plummets, and somewhat suspiciously. During my digging around, though, I found a couple of interesting points regarding the ruling. The judge made a point to say, although he was not directly involved in the criminal act, he is the main culprit of the incident and that it is a rare incident in the history of crime and criminal responsibility, for it is grave. And the High Court presiding judge, Yasuo Torai, said, Defendant Gogata has long been controlled through violence by Defendant Matsunaga, and her involvement in the crimes was subordinate. But, like me, the judge expressed my sentiment. Something critical in the world of verdicts was shared by Yasuo. The judge, taking into account the confessions during the investigations, and expressions of regret by Junko in the trial, Todai said, I would hesitate to impose the death penalty. And that sends a message to me that yes, the crimes are heinous, and yes, Futoshi was involved. There is an obvious connection, but the lack of evidence in that involvement would make the death penalty difficult to impose. The reason I'm hammering this home is that in the first part of this case we explored the murders, the background of Hitoshi and the motivations, but in judging him, it is important not to rely solely on the media as evidence, despite it being all we have, but instead, on facts relevant to the case. In relying on trial by media, we skew the means of how justice is delivered, and where justice stops being a tool of acute judgement, and moves into the territory of emotionally charged decisions that could unfairly condemn a person. We only have two subjective views on what took place here. We only have two subjective views of what took place. One from the perspective of the killer, and the other from those that endured witnessing or being involved in those murders, effectively enduring torture, and due to the lack of any other evidence, we can only take away what we know, based on that information. Don't forget, they too are victims and also had their own motivations in this case. But then I ask, is Futoshi then without reasonable doubt implicated? In my opinion, without a doubt, based on the confessions, his actions, his responses, and even his dealings when it comes to fraud. But the physical component of these crimes regarding the murders are absent, and without turning this into a witch hunt, we can only charge him on what we know the accidental murder of Kumyo, as he says in his own testimony, and his use of people as money trees, extortion and extensive fraud, and simply having the connection to Junko and the seven murders. From a conviction perspective, that's not enough to issue a death sentence, in my opinion. It fascinates me that even a criminal like Futoshi, whose only involvement to the murders can be linked to two confessions of people directly involved with those murders. And that no other information surfaced surrounding this case as physical evidence. What's more, mates, the more I dug into journals, media, research papers on the case, the less I found. I'd find an article specific to the case, the outcome, and details reported in mainstream media, only to find it be missing, removed, or redacted in some cases, and I couldn't figure out why. I even used the Wayback Machine to locate old articles. Still, zero luck. The articles and all oldest duplicates, for example, had been removed. So. Read into that what you will, mates. I found it strange, nonetheless. Let's park those thoughts for now though, and assuming what we know of the case still holds true. We'll move on to the Milgram experiment which encapsulates the effectiveness of manipulation of the mind, particularly using torture, or any other kind of aggressive stimulus, in a means to control others. Take note of authority in this case, where Futoshi would be the authority figure. The experiment was conducted by Yale University, by psychologist Stanley Milgram. The purpose? To study the willingness of others in obeying authority figures. Those tested came from a multitude of educational backgrounds, and were instructed to perform actions that would conflict with the moral compass or conscience. The members of the experiment are as follows. Number one, the experimenter who is in charge of the sessions. Number two, the teacher the people who were assisting in the session but actually doling out the pain, and three the learner that worked with the experimenter and pretended to be a volunteer. This next content is paraphrased from the Milgram Experiment website, and is a reference in the show notes. The experiment runs as follows. Both the subject and the actor arrived at the session together. The experimenter told them that they were taking part in a scientific study of memory and learning to see what the effect of punishment is on a subject's ability to memorize content. Also, he always clarified that the payment for participation in the experiment was secured no matter the outcome. The subject and actor drew slips of paper to determine their roles. Unknown to the subject, both slips said teacher. The actor would always claim to have drawn the slip that read learner, guaranteeing that the subject would always be the teacher. Next, the teacher and learner were taken into an adjacent room where the learner was strapped into what appeared to be an electric chair. The experimenter told the participants this was to ensure that the learner would not escape. In a later variation of the experiment, the confederate would eventually plead for mercy and yell that he had a heart condition. At some point prior to the actual test, the teacher was given a sample electric shock from the electroshock generator in order to experience firsthand what the shock that the learner would supposedly receive during the experiment would feel like. The teacher and learner were then separated such that they could communicate but not see each other. The teacher was then given a list of word pairs that he was to teach the learner. The teacher began by reading the list of word pairs to the learner. The teacher would then read the first word of each pair and read four possible answers. The learner would press a button to indicate his response. If the answer was incorrect, the teacher would administer a shock to the learner with the voltage increasing in 15 volt increments for each wrong answer. If correct, the teacher would read the next word pair. The subjects believed that for each wrong answer, the learner was receiving actual shocks. In reality, there were no shocks. After the learner was separated from the teacher, the learner set up a tape recorder integrated with the electroshock generator, which played pre-recorded sounds for each shock level. As the voltage of the fake shocks increased, the learner began making audible protests such as banging repeatedly on the wall that separated him from the teacher. When the highest voltages were reached, the learner fell silent. If at any time the teacher indicated a desire to halt the experiment, the experimenter was instructed to give specific verbal prods. The prods were in order. Please continue. The experiment requires that you continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue. You have no other choice. You must go on. If the subject still wished to stop after all four successive verbal prods, the experiment was halted. Otherwise, it was halted after the subject had been given the maximum 450 volt shock three times in succession. The experimenter also had prods to use if the teacher made specific comments. If the teacher asked whether the learner might suffer permanent physical harm, the experimenter replied, although the shocks may be painful, there is no permanent tissue damage, so please go on. If the teacher said that the learner clearly wants to stop, the experimenter replied, whether the learner likes it or not, you must go on until he's learned all the word pairs correctly, so please go on. And now, let's look at the results. In Milgram's first set of experiments, 65% 26 or 40, of experiment participants administered the experiment's final massive 450-volt shock, and all administered shocks of at least 300 volts. Subjects were uncomfortable doing so, and displayed varying degrees of tension and stress. These signs included sweating, trembling, stuttering, biting their lips, groaning, and digging their fingernails into their skin, and some were even having nervous laughing fits or seizures. Every participant paused the experiment at least once to question it, most continued after being assured by the experimenter. Some said they would refund the money they were paid for participating. Milgram summarized the experiment in his 1974 article, The Perils of Obedience, writing, The legal and philosophic aspects of obedience are of enormous importance, but they say very little about how most people behave in concrete situations. I set up a simple experiment at Yale University to test how much pain an ordinary citizen would inflict on another person, simply because he was ordered to, by an experimental scientist. Stark authority was pitted against the subject's strongest moral imperatives against hurting others, and, with the subject's ears ringing with the screams of the victims, authority won more often than not. The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any lengths on the command of an authority constitutes the chief finding of the study and the fact most urgently demanding explanation. Ordinary people, simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part, can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, even when the destructive effects of their work becomes patently clear and they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of morality, Relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority. And this leads me to Junku and KD and the orders given as an authority figure by Futoshi. The threats, progressive torture, and mental breakdown over 5 years saw Junku and KD lose the ability to fight back directly, which I mentioned previously in this case. And the will to survive coupled with the automation of thought during extreme or stressful situations meant that acting on authority was often easier than dealing with the situation directly. The Milgram experiment demonstrates that even the most horrible acts, when given by someone that person deems as an authority figure, will refrain from resisting in most cases, and makes it possible for someone like Fatoshi to have commanded not only Junko and KD, but also the entire Ogata family during their time, to keep them held as hostages. Also, during the experiment, the degree of severity of fake electric shocks was dependent on the proximity of learner and experimenter, with the correlation of obedience garnered by that proximity. So, if you can imagine how close Ritoshi was to Junko and KD, whether that be physically or even emotionally, including those that he tortured, well, the level of obedience must have been unquestionable at that point. Hopefully, this puts in perspective how this sort of control was exercised over the Agata family, and one versus five could have been possible with physical torture, mental attrition, and subordinate slaves that were created over a five-year period. Lastly, I wanted to talk about capital punishment in Japan. Futoshi was sentenced to hang on September 28, 2005, on the grounds of the evidence that was presented, and the confessions of the accomplice and the hostage. When a person is sentenced to death, there are strict guidelines that the court system in Japan follows based on a precedent in the past. There are two stages. The first is the normal course within court. You were convicted, put on trial, and sentenced. The point of where evidence is considered takes place during the first stage, and doesn't follow after that point, unless there is a substantial appeal. So in this case, the prosecutor would have to convince the judge that they are both guilty, which, based on Junko's confession, predominantly and information supported from KD, would be the nail in the coffin so it seems. This then moves this case onto the guidelines for execution of the death penalty. Japan's capital punishment is based off the Nagayama standard, one that was developed in the courts and laid down onto Norio Nagayama, a 19-year-old who committed four murders in 1968. From that case onwards, there would be a precedent that all death penalties would follow, although interestingly enough, not officially, They do adhere to these guidelines almost on every occasion regarding death penalties in Japan. It is a 9 point guideline and is as follows. Number 1. Degree of viciousness. Number 2. Motive. Number 3. How the crime was committed, especially the manner in which the victim was killed. Number 4. The outcome of the crime, especially the number of victims. Number 5. Sentiments of the bereaved family members. Number six, impact of the crime on Japanese society. I found that one particularly interesting. Number seven, defendant's age. In Japan, someone is a minor until the age of 20. Number eight, defendant's previous criminal record. And number nine, degree of remorse shown by the defendant. None, in this case, for Futoshi. Which could explain the severity of his death penalty. Once these are satisfied, the sentence is written up and acted upon. Now, when a death penalty is issued, it must be executed within six months, and only after the failure of a prisoner's final appeal, however, requesting a retrial or pardon resets this process, effectively allowing the stay of the death penalty to be really, well, infinite. For example, Sadamichi Hirasawa died of natural causes at the age of 95, after awaiting execution for 32 years. And that, listeners, is what Futoshi is doing to this day, waiting inside his cell for the day of hanging, whilst Junko Ogata, rejecting the ownership of being completely guilty, pleaded for her sentence to be reduced to life due to the complete manipulation and control excised by Futoshi during the time of the murders. She did so successfully, and remains in jail for life as a result. So folks, my burning question, my curveball to you, the listener, Knowing what we know from this case's research, based on information provided by journals and the media, direct confessions from Junko and KD with complete denial by Fritoshi, would you convict him to death by hanging? My opinion is no. There is not enough evidence to do so. However, there is enough evidence to put him away based on fraud, connection to the murders by Junko, and corroborated evidence by KD but I am keen to hear your thoughts. Maybe I'm mistaken. Let me know if you think I am. It's always great to hear another perspective. Mates, I hope you learned something new in this case of Futoshi Matsunaga, and thank you so much for listening. A big thank you to my Patreon supporters that support this podcast. You enable me to produce content like this and spend time researching to bring you episodes that hopefully have you thinking and asking some tough questions. This concludes the Futoshi Matsunaga case, and I'll see you Friday for some creepy tales. As always, listeners, till next, we meet.